So the good news is the election is over. And hopefully that means an end to the endless ads uh, for this politician or that politician every time you turn on the TV or uh, get online for, for whatever reason. I was thinking about how much money was spent on this election. Every ad you saw represented money someone chose to spend. And I, I decided to consult Google and found out that $14 billion was spent in this past election. Billion dollars. Um, what else could that money have been used for? I mean, how many soup kitchens could have been, been able to function with that? I mean, how many homeless shelters could have been run or, empt or opened? Or how many people could have done great things instead of using that to put up endless ads on, on every media environment you could find? It shows that the people of this world will fight and strive to gain political power. That, that they'll, they'll spend whatever it takes. Was not there a politician from New York that spent a billion dollars trying to get a, elected himself? Or something like that. Some, someone named Bloomberg and uh, barely got any attention, whatever. I spent a billion dollars just to get noticed. Is it not working? Because I didn't turn it on. I have made Jason's life really hard today. I, I switched from Mike. Now I'm working. I am sorry about that, Jason. Um, thank you for your grace. So now I'm going to put this down so that you can see me. All right. So what do we see when we, we think about human government? We see corruption, political grudges. We see leaders afraid of public opinion, we see family dynasties and, and rulers clinging to power, we see foolish boasting all the time, we see sex scandals, all of that. But this morning, we're going to set aside those things and we're going to focus on the holy and noble word of God and, and think of pure things, right? Well, our passage today shows that the, the Bible does not ignore the corruption and darkness in this world. And that when Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, he came to bring that kingdom within this dark and corrupt world. And, and so it wasn't just, you know, nicey to nice all the times, that there are things that happen. And so Mark, as he's telling the story of Jesus, he, he shows that, that there would be um, the corruption of this world still operating, even as the kingdom of God was being planted. So in Mark 6, la last week we talked about how Jesus went to his hometown and was rejected. Um, after that, he makes a shift in strategy. This is a little before our passage. It says that Jesus began to send his apostles his 12 disciples, out to preach, two by two. And they went from town to town, um, up in Galilee, to begin to spread the message of, of the kingdom, that Jesus, the good news about, the, about Jesus. 
And he did this, this, this had two reasons, two effects. One is it enabled them to take the message further. Before that, Jesus had been traveling with his disciples from town to town. Now, instead of one person, there would be six pairs who went out. So it would spread further. Also, it would begin to prepare the, the apostles to be ready when Jesus went away, when they were left to be the ones leading the charge. And so this change of tactics, though, caught the attention of the secular powers, where in Israel, there was the Jewish people, both in Jerusalem and in Galilee, they were ruled over by the Romans, um, the Greek and Roman culture, and and so there were almost separate cities. The, the Greek and Romans would, in a sense, start their own Greek-type cities, you know, with baths and all the things they had expect, while the regular people, the Jewish people, lived kind of in their own villages. But this prominence of Jesus started to grow so much that even now in the halls of power, Herod, the ruler in Galilee, takes notice And the word that spreads about Jesus, he's compared to two different people we see in our passage. First of all, Elijah. Elijah was the greatest of the miracle-working prophets in the Old Testament. So seven to eight hundred years before Jesus. And Jesus, like Elijah, did impressive miracles of power that people could see. So they compare him to Elijah. They also then compare him to a more recent figure, John the Baptist who was an incredibly popular prophet who preached the word of God out in the desert and people went out to hear what he had to say. And and so they're saying, well, Jesus is sort of like Elijah, where he's sort of like John. And Herod comes to this odd conclusion. Herod says, he must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's an interesting conclusion to come to. And I think it says something about the heart of Herod. Because we see that Herod is the one who had put John the Baptist to death. And there's something niggling at his conscience that's saying what he did, he knew wasn't right. And so John or Mark then decides he's going to give the, the background story of of. Basically, how John was killed, why Herod had him put to death. And to do that, then uh, he, he assumes that the people would know the players. I'm going to go through some of the background information so you know all the different names. Because it gets really confusing because there's a lot of people named Herod. So it all starts with a family dynasty of Herod the Great. Herod the Great came to power in 40 B.C. The Romans appointed him king over... Israel, Palestine, the Jewish areas. Um, He had become an ally of Mark Antony during the Roman Civil War period. And somehow, even after Mark Antony lost, Herod managed to then gain favor with Augustus Caesar. And so uh, Caesar continued him as the king of the Jews in Palestine. So Herod ruled from 40 B.C. all the way down to 4 B.C., right? a little before the time, or a little uh, to the time of Jesus' birth. Um, Herod, because he'd been appointed by the Romans, 
had trouble gaining legitimacy among the Jewish people. Um, you know, why, why should they let, you know, why should they accept him as their king? And so he fought to be seen as legitimate. And so he did a lot of things in his time. He, he married the daughter of the high priest. He also rebuilt the Jerusalem temple. In fact, by the time of Jesus, it was the most massive and impressive building it had ever been because of all the money and all the stone that, that Herod had put into it. He wanted to gain favor, so he, he rebuilt up that temple. He married into the dynasty that ruled over the temple, you know, by marrying that. And, um, but still, he struggled with legitimacy, and, and he saw conspiracies everywhere. He was paranoid. And he had one wife killed. He had two of his sons killed. Um, who he feared that were trying to overthrow him. Um, and so when you read about in Matthew 2, this Herod the Great's the Herod in Matthew chapter 2, that tries to kill baby Jesus and ends up massacring the, the children in uh, Bethlehem. So that was that Herod. When he died in 4 BC, the dynasty continued. Um, his kingdom, though, was split up among his different sons. And it seems that at least all his surviving sons were named Herod. So the first one, Herod Jr., is Herod Philip. He's the son of Herod the Great. He was ruler over the northern territories, um, uh, uh, nor outside of the, like, Syria, north, north of Israel. Um, the other Herod, other ruler, other son, was Herod Antipas. And he ends up becoming ruler in Galilee. He's the Herod that we're going to deal with in our passage. So then there's Herodias. She is the granddaughter of Herod. So still named after um, the big guy. Um, so she's the granddaughter. Herod actually had her, one, her father executed. Um, and Herod also decided that Herodias would marry Herod Philip. So he marries, he has her marry her own uncle. They did that back then. I guess that was a thing. And so she's married to her uncle. And then they have one daughter, Salome. And so Salome's the dancer. So she shows up in the story. Okay, so that's the family dynasty. The scandal comes when Herod Antipas goes to visit his brother Herod Philip and sees his wife, Herodias, and they fall in love. And so she leaves her husband, Herod P., and marries his brother, Herod A. And they go to live. So her and their, the Salome the, goes to live with her new stepdad and also her uncle. Yes, they did that back then. This was not a scandal in Roman and Greek eyes, but it was for the people of God. And that's where we get a problem because in addition to all this, we have an inconvenient prophet. John the Baptist declares publicly that the, the law says you are not to marry your brother's wife, that, that the, the marriage is not un proper under God's sight. And so he publicly criticizes Herod, Antipas. 
Kings don't like to be criticized. No. So what does he do? He has John the Baptist arrested and put in prison. In other nations, um, the king's law, the king's word is the law. But in Israel, they were a people under God. And so they, the, the king had to f- fall under the word and authority of God. And Herod had portrayed himself as the ruler of the Jewish people, as a king of the Jews. And so he was subject to that authority even though he wanted to rule in the Roman and Greek style where he could do as he wished. So there is is John the Baptist in prison. Why doesn't Herod put John to death? He could have done that. It would have been no big deal. Two reasons. He talks with John and something about what John says intrigues him. He, He realizes there's something to him. He likes talking to him. Even though John won't go along, won't, won't go along with what he's trying to get him to teach, where John won't take his side of things. And then most of all, it's because he's afraid of the public opinion. The people thought John was a prophet, saw him as a prophet. And so John, or uh, Herod just can't get away with having him put to death. So that's the situation at the beginning of our passage. And then Mark goes into a flashback mode. So the event he's telling with the the dinner party is in the past. It had already happened by the time Jesus had been promoting. It's it's that Jesus is being thought of just like John the Baptist that promotes the story. So we go into a flashback to a dinner party that Herod had had with all the important people in Galilee. And there they are. They're all drinking. They're all eating. Everything's good. And Salome dances. And she must have been a really good dancer because everyone is oh so impressed and whatever that dance was like, it has everyone in a mood. And so Herod wants to kind of maybe impress his guests or um, boast a little bit. And so he says, ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. I think he's probably a little tipsy. He just wants to be... uh, you know, impress people. And what was he expecting her to ask? This, Salome was likely maybe a teenager, an old teena- older teenager or a young woman. You know, what's she going to ask for? What, what would you expect a teen girl to ask for if you said, give me, you know, whatever you want? Jewels. Clo- new phone. <laughs> yep. New car. I don't know if what, what I, I think they're watching from home, but, uh, I don't know what my daughter would ask for. Would she ask for a new phone or a new car? That would be the, probably the big thing. You know, so she's probably, he's, Herod is thinking something like that, right? He could, he could do all that. He had, he had money. Instead, Salome says, we have an opportunity. She goes and talks to her mom, Herodias, and says, what should I ask for? Herodias, though, is carrying a grudge. She's the one that John was speaking against when he said, you shall not marry your brother's wife. So she remembers these things. She's, she's not happy. She wants to, to use this moment. And so she says, here's what you asked for. Now, now think about this. If she would have just said, get him to promise to kill John the Baptist, and what would have Herod done? Well, he could have promised that in the moment, 
but gone back on it later when the guests are gone. It had to be right there, right now. She had to put him on the spot that he had to answer it before everyone went away. And so the request is, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so that's what you get. The executioner goes, takes care of it. And imagine being at this party. You know, when they walk in with this platter, right? And, you know, up goes the lid. There you go. As you, like, imagine you were one of the guests at this party. Would this, you would talk about this, right? You would go home to your friends. You should have seen what happened at Herod's party. First they had this girl dance, you know, and drinking. And then, you know, like, you don't want to miss a party by Herod. Like, that, that would probably have been the talk of the town for a while. It would, it would, and so that's the scene you get in, in the story. But why does Mark include it in his gospel? He's telling the story of Jesus. Not, not, you know, why does this make it into the Word of God? I think there's two reasons. The first is this. The lives of John the Baptist and Jesus are intertwined in various ways. It is John's ministry sets up the ministry of Jesus. John is the one who baptizes Jesus. And after that, that's the start of Jesus' ministry. And from there on, John's ministry becomes less and Jesus begins to come to the foreground. We find out in the Gospel of John, that some of John's disciples, or some of Jesus' disciples had first been John's disciples, that John steers them to following Jesus. We find out in the Gospel of Luke that John and Jesus are actually cousins, and that his mom, mother Mary knew John's mother Elizabeth, that they were cousins together. And um, we also find out in John's Gospel that, that G- John said something like this, He said, as Jesus became more prominent, he said to his disciples, I must become less as he becomes greater. John was ready to to yield the floor to Jesus, to his ministry. So their lives were intertwined. That's that's one reason why Mark includes it. The second reason is even more so, the deaths of John and Jesus are intertwined in God's plan of salvation. I want to jump ahead to Mark 9. And there's something that happens later in the gospel when Jesus goes with his disciples. They go, have, they go up a mountain and have a vision where Jesus is affirmed as the Messiah. This is, God says, this is my son. Listen to him. And up on that mountain, they also have, they see Moses and Elijah as part of this, this vision that they have up on the mountain. And so coming down, the disciples have lots of questions, but one of them is this. They ask, why do the scribes, the teachers of the law, why do they say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah? In other words, they're convinced now that Jesus is the Messiah, but they had heard that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah. And Jesus answers, no, he says, Elijah does come first. That, that, that's true. That is something that happens. It says, but remember the Son of Man, that he would, be, he would be rejected and suffer many things. Remember the plan is that the Messiah would be rejected and, and face suffering. And so I tell you, Elijah 
has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And it doesn't say it in Mark, because Mark maybe presumes people would figure it out. But in Matthew, it makes it clear, in case you didn't know, he says the disciples knew that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is that Elijah figure. Not saying he was literally Elijah raised from the dead, but he's saying he came in the same mold of Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet of old. So John is the last of the great prophets of the old age. And John's death, his rejection and death would single signal an end to that age. And then Jesus is the Messiah for the new age of the kingdom. And it would be Jesus' rejection and death that would bring in the new age of the kingdom of God on earth. So John's death signaled the end of the old age. Jesus' death would usher in the new age, the new kingdom of God. That's why they're connected. What do we take from this other than an interesting story in the Bible? I think the core thing is I just meditated on this all week is that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God in the midst of an evil and corrupt world. That, that God's plan of salvation was not to take over the kingdoms of the earth, but instead to plant his kingdom right in the midst of them. He, he left them in place. He left the human governments to do what they're going to do, the Roman Empire and and all the rest, but he, it would start as a seed, the kingdom of God, and God would plant that through Jesus and his followers, and his people would hear the message and respond to the good news of a Savior as they put their faith in Jesus and yield their lives to him and begin to, to, to follow um, God and begin to allow God's rule to be active in their life, the kingdom would grow. Instead of overthrowing the kingdoms of the world, God would just displace them as God's kingdom would, would act within the world. And so, instead of taking over a human kingdom, God would start his own kingdom that would, would do, bring the salvation that no human leader could do. That's what I see happening here. I see four main points that I want to highlight as I, as I think about this. And by pastor law, they all have to start with the same letter. I realize I've kind of failed in that, that I have not had enough alliteration in my closing points so far. But I'll make, for, make up for today. All these will start with D. So first is distinct fears. The rule of God in the kingdom is distinct from human government. God would do his work in human affairs, through his people. The means of salvation is not getting the right people elected to government or getting the right government into place. The means of salvation become God's people faithfully declaring the message of Jesus and holding on to that message no matter what this world affords. We call to follow the example of John who rather than, than give in to the power of this world and save his own life, continued to uphold what is true and right, even at the cost of his own life. 
Jesus said, um, when, when asked about how the government would work, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. Who demands your first loyalty, Caesar or God? The second D is a different sort of rule. The rule of God is not going to work like human government. We, the, um, Jesus tells his disciples their way of operating will be completely different. In, in your uh, handout sheet, it, it cites Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called his disciples and he said this to him. He says, you, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's how power works in this world. You know what? You get, you get the position, you know, you're appointed governor so-and-so, and you get to tell people what to do. Not so with you. Your way of ruling will be different. It says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. We in the church have a different way of, of leading and serving and, and bringing good in this world. And we can't copy the methods that we see happening around us out there. We're called to lead through service, not by exist, issuing executive orders. The, the third way, the third D, desire for worldly power. Christians throughout the ages have fallen to the trap of seeking power and prestige in this world instead of staying faithful to the mission. We, we can get caught up in the, the things of this world and start seeking the ways of this world rather than staying focused on the, on the mission that we've been given. And if I could just cite an example, I think of what's happening at what has happened recently at Liberty University. It's a Christian um, organization, a Christian university, known as an evangelical, you know, they teach the word of God there. The students had a kind of a fairly strict moral code that they're expected to follow. Well, in recent days, the, the president of that university didn't think that that code applied to him. And and after a few years of, of scandals that kept erupting, one too many scandals finally hit, and he was recently at, asked to step down, um, resign from that position. But as I read up on that, what it sounds to me is that under Jerry Falwell Jr., Liberty got caught up in the power and prestige of the world. They got more and more involved in the political side of things. They sought to, to grow um, bigger and develop a top-tier football team and to, to, in a sense, be a player in the world politics. And they lost sight of what they're about. Now, I have no attachment to liberty, but I wonder if in the, within their change of new president that they're going to rethink how they've been interacting in that way. The fourth D is the greatest danger. What is the greatest danger that we face as a church? I a lot of times hear from Christians that their, their greatest worry is hostility from the culture and persecution by the government. 
I don't think that's it. In fact, I think the greatest danger is being co-opted by the government. That it's not persecution, it's government favor that can actually make a different, a, a greater problem. That the, the rulers of this world would love to shift the purposes and energy of the church for their own ends. They would love to co-opt what we're doing and what God has us here for and instead shift us to, to serving their purposes and their ends instead of God's. And I think to give an example of that, um, maybe you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anyone familiar with him? There's a, a biography of him about seven, eight years ago that came out. Um, his, his best book, I would say, is called The Cost of Discipleship. He was a, a German pastor and teacher in the 1930s, the, theologian, really. And in his time, he saw the National Socialists take power and they wanted to co-opt the church. Rather than the communists who were wanted to destroy the church under the National Socialists, they wanted to, to, to get control of the church. And so they used favor. They, they gave the German Lutheran church a favorite, favored position. And, you know, the, the government uh, would pay the salaries of the pastors and teachers. And so they got all kinds of things. The only problem is they had to go along with what the government said. One of the laws they, they foisted upon the church was that anyone who had uh, Jewish descent, Jewish blood in their background, could not be a Christian pastor. And so Dietrich had a friend who was uh, forced out of ministry, the clergy, because he had um, had a Jewish grandfather somewhere in his line. And so they tried to take over the church. And so Dietrich ended up along some other Germans because uh, the bulk of the church went along with it. They gave in to the demands of the government power. Dietrich and a, and a minority of uh, pastors, they formed what's called the Confessing Church. He tried to form uh, pastor training seminaries, but they kept getting shut down. Two different times the government shut down his teaching. Eventually he went to, um, got invited to come to America to teach there. Thinking, well, I'm not allowed to teach in Germany. I might as well come to America and, and at least I'll be safe from all that's going on. All the things that kept building up as the 30s went on. So in the summer of 1939, Dietrich is in the U.S. And he's, he's got a secure teaching position. Everything's going well. Um, but on his heart, God puts this idea. If I want to be a pastor to my people, I have to, to be with them and endure what they endure. So instead of staying in a secure place in America, he gets on a ship and heads back to Germany. He gets back in August of 1939. Anyone remember what happens on September 1st? Germany invades Poland. World War II begins, and from there on out, there was no escape. And it would be at uh, Flossenburg concentration camp that Dietrich would be hanged by the National Socialists just before the end of the war. He would rather stay faithful to God and what he called him to do to go, than go along 
with the, the world that would shape and, and try to take over his message. We as God's people are called to stay faithful to the word. That is our calling, to not, not be ruled over by the powers of this thing. Our first ruler is, is our Lord and Savior. May God give us strength to hold on to what he's teaching us and that we would keep him as our first focus. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the example of, of John the Baptist and how he stayed faithful amidst a corrupt and dark world and that he continued to, to stand strong in you even when he faced um, persecution and hostility. Lord, may we love you so much. May, you, may we keep you as our first focus in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.